1: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead on what's shaping up to be a very busy Friday here on The Exchange. COVID jitters are spooking the markets, with Austria becoming the first major country to go back into lockdown. The Dow sinks, but tech stocks gain thanks to falling yields. We'll have the latest. And policymakers took what they learned from the financial crisis and applied it to fighting COVID-19. But was that a mistake? We'll look at what isn't working now and why it could cause bigger problems in the future. Plus, we'll also get some retail names to stuff your stockings with as we're just about a month away from Christmas. But we begin with these split markets. Now, Clarida making
2: some comments. Dom, we can't keep up. I know. Clarida making some comments about whether or not those inflationary pressures upward are there. Earlier this year, they talked about transitory. We heard that a lot. So, Let's talk about the real push and pull in the markets right now. Kelly mentioned the underperformance, markedly so in the Dow Industrials, down about one-half of 1%. That's roughly 150 points. We're off the lows of the session right now. To give you an idea for the broader-based S&P 500, we're up 7 right now at the highs of the day. We were up roughly 13 points, or rather here, up 13 points and then down 7 points or so at the lows. So you can see tilting more towards the high end of the range here, but the Nasdaq Composite, stands out. It gets a star, a gold one there, because it hits a record high. It's right near the session highs right now, up two-thirds of 1%. Those falling yields on the sovereign bond side of things here in the United States are part of that story. We can see the 10-year Treasury note yield, the benchmark, 1.55%. It's kind of taken a leg lower here, but you can still see kind of trapped in this range that we've seen over the last couple of months. Now, we have seen that 10 year note yield move a little bit higher and lower in this range. So, whether or not it sticks, that'll be a big question. But we are seeing the weakness in those travel and hospitality and leisure type names on those COVID fears. Could what happened in Austria be a precursor to something more broad ranging in terms of a global slowdown in the economy? American Airlines down about 1%, Live Nation down 1.5%, Booking Holdings and Royal Caribbean all in that kind of down 1% to 2% range. range you can see here but remember with these names in the intraday session, Kelly, we are now well off our session lows for many of those stocks. We'll see if a bit of a reversal is taking hold here. I'll send things back over to you.
1: All right, Don, thank you. Meantime, trading activity in single stock options hit a record high earlier this month with $945 billion traded on November 5th, according to Goldman Sachs. Today, three quarters of a trillion dollars worth of options are set to expire. Bob Pisani has the names dominating this recent activity and the impact that's having on the broader markets, Bob.
3: And uh, Kelly, the options in future world has expanded in recent years. It's very different. The main action used to be in quarterly options or stocks. Uh, for stocks and indexes but much of the action has now shifted to monthly and even weekly options individual stock options in particular have been taken up enthusiastically by the robin hood reddit crowd who favor monthly expirations and things like the fang stocks and recently in electric vehicle names take a look they particularly favor call options these are bets that would win when the underlying stocks rise so most active call options include things like Apple, tesla Lucid, Facebook, Amazon right now, these are the most active ones. Apple, by the way, has seen a major increase in call volume. It's a big momentum favorite going into the expiration this afternoon. Now, judging by the call volume and the stock price, Tesla's momentum is slowing down a little bit. Open interest is smaller in puts. Puts are bets the stock will decline. But Alibaba in particular here stands out. That's, that's new on that list. There's a whole pile of puts that have gone in the money in the last couple of days as Alibaba disappointed on earnings and has seen a 10 percent drop in price and Kelly, it is quite remarkable to see this explosion yeah. uh, in monthly options, particularly call options this year with the Reddit Robinhood crowd.
1: What is the impact on equity structure, Bob, as we're seeing almost more trading in options than in stocks themselves?
3: Yeah, it's, it's not quite right to say that the options tail is wagging the dog at this point, but it really has caught a lot of people's attention. And of course, remember something, you're in an up market. so it, the start of a new options season or monthly options, you buy some options slightly out-of-the-money options in an up market. They will tend to go into the money, and if you do this month after month, suddenly you think you're a genius, but you're not. You're in an up market. So remember, we haven't really had this whole new system of movement to monthly and even weekly options really tested in a, in a down market or a more volatile market. We'll see.
1: Fair enough. Bob, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Bob Bassani tracking things down at the New York Stock Exchange. The Dow, meantime, is on track for its second straight weekly loss as that lockdown in Austria has renewed worries about the pandemic. Airlines like United, American and Delta taking a hit today. Boeing also lower as it faces a separate report from The Wall Street Journal that the company is slowing 787 Dreamliner manufacturing even further. Deliveries increasingly likely to resume in February or March at the earliest. My next guest is staying bullish on that name despite everything. Joining me now is Chris Crisanti, the chief equity strategist and senior portfolio manager at MAI Capital Management. Chris, welcome. Before we delve into that broadly, what do you think about the sort of rearing of its head of COVID once again?
4: Yeah, Kelly, thanks. It's nice to be back with you. Um, I, I think this is not a total surprise. It was last November when, when cases started to go up again. If you look at a map of the United States, for example, you'll see it's not red states or blue states. It's cold states versus hot states. As people go indoors up north, uh, the COVID is coming back. Uh, that's true in Europe as well. As you see Norway and Germany, much worse off, for example, than Spain. Um, so what I think is it will get worse before it gets better. But but we're nowhere near where we were a year ago. We have vaccines. We have terrific drugs for treatment of folks who actually get the COVID. ICU beds are widely available. So, So I don't see another lockdown on the horizon here in the United States. One, it won't be as bad. And two, there's real lockdown fatigue that will push against that.
1: Yeah, I hope you're right. And it is sort of jarring to see things normalize, especially like you said, I'm in a cold state like New Jersey and workplaces are going back to normal and traffic is way higher and events are right. back to normal and and everything as well. So let's turn and talk about Boeing, which could be affected by this, but also by these Dreamliner issues. Um, you love the stock. You still think it could double?
4: I do. I do. And people say, oh, there's a lot of hair on it. And I laugh and I say, are you kidding? That This stock is Sasquatch. There's so much <laughs> hair on this stock. So, But for that reason, we like it because it can uh, – in two years, these problems could be behind it. And, and like, unlike any other kind of blue-chip uh, great American company, this stock is still selling for half of what it was two years ago. So if you believe like we do – that A, they can solve their own uh, specific issues. Again, the 787 would be one that reared its head today. Uh, and B, that folks will go back to flying in airplanes again over just over the next three years. They don't need to do it next month. Um, this could be a terrific stock. It's hard to think of a stock that's not a big tech stock that, that could go up 100% in a couple of years just to get back to where it used to be.
1: It still reminds me of a company, You know, maybe I could compare it with Intel, where there have been obvious missteps. You know, we've seen the rise of rivals like NVIDIA, whereas Intel has been a much bigger struggle. Right. But it seems with Boeing, it doesn't really matter because there's only two big plane makers, Boeing and Airbus.
4: Exactly.
1: So Intel used to be them a the
4: pass. best in the world. Yeah. And, and now, you know, it's arguably Taiwan Semi, which we own, uh, and Samsung. But, but here, there, there, it's, it's like Visa and Mastercard. It's Airbus and Boeing. There's no other place to go. But also, do you know, 80% of the world's population has never been on an airplane? So it's nice to think of a market like that that's still wide open and, again, in three years could be gangbusters again.
1: All right. Well, you raised Visa. So (laughs) let's spend a moment on that one, which we are uh, showing it on the screen. It is another one of your picks here. And that one, I might argue with you that there's no competition. You know, you've seen what's going on with Buy Now, Pay Later, obviously crypto, Bitcoin network, Um, even in Europe, where they're building out their own payment system, starting with peer to peer Doesn't that mean there's new rivals for Visa that have never existed before? And that's why big retailers are pushing back on them to lower fees?
4: Oh, I I think so. And and you're you're seeing, obviously, you're seeing Amazon is the latest example of of, of pushing back on fees in the United Kingdom. Um, First of all, I I would take it as a great uh, tribute to Amazon. And investors should take note, wow, we have a, a, a customer big enough to to singly push back against Visa. And so that's pretty impressive on Amazon. But what I would say is this is a dynamic situation, not static. So Visa is smart and they understand that there are these lots of different payment options and they're expanding in different ways, but still, most of the world, and I get back to the Boeing example, you've got a huge middle class growing all over the world. And most of those transactions are still done in cash. So we see quite a long runway. But, and why I'm excited about Visa today and not, say, four months ago is it's down 20%. And again, we don't think that's fundamental long-term issues. We think this is a good entry point that you get every two or three years. And, and you can hold the stock for five or 10 years. I think the runway is really that long.
1: And finally, Chris, why Visa over MasterCard? Because MasterCard does seem to be a little bit more involved with exposure to crypto and things like that. Even those in the payment space, the analysts themselves who are worried about disruption would kind of favor MasterCard over Visa for that reason.
4: Well, well, Kelly, you know, it, it's funny. I, I'm going to be I can be intelligent and give you three reasons why you should get <laughs> Visa or MasterCard. But I get asked that question a lot. I actually went back and did a regression analysis. They are 96% correlated. Mm. So if you feel more comfortable with MasterCard for whatever reasons, you, you know, you're probably gonna do just well. They're much more correlated, for example, than, than uh, Ford and General Motors or, or, or any of those other companies. So, so the honest answer that we shouldn't tell you because it's a deep secret is that it really doesn't it matter. It doesn't matter, exactly. I In praise, the long term, I think that's
1: probably right, right. I praise your honesty. Final quick question. Right? What happens with interest rates from here?
4: I got to tell you I'm pessimistic. I think the Fed is has been our best friend in the market for the last 18 months and I'm a little afraid a year from now they won't be returning our calls. Hmm. And and I think that's because uh wage inflation as we've started to see already, I think it's going to become a bigger and bigger problem, and it's not going to go away. You know, oil and houses, they can go up and down, but wages, once they start going up, it's hard to reverse them, and I think that will force the Fed's hand. So so I think six, nine months from now, they'll be significantly higher. We can live with that, because earnings should come through, but the question is, what will the market be willing to pay for those earnings in a higher-rate environment? Absolutely,
1: That's a big and you have Clarida commenting this afternoon, maybe he exactly. would look at a, a quicker taper. We'll see. Chris, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Great to see you today.
4: You too, Kelly. Nice Chris to be with Grisanti
1: you. Santi talking markets now. Austria's nationwide COVID shutdown is sending jitters across global markets, and cases have been spiking in European countries like Germany as well. The Pan European Stock 600 Index and Germany's DAX both fell about a third of a percent today, while Austria's index plunged three percent for its worst day in over a year. NBC's Claudio Lavanga is in Rome with the latest, but we will pause and pivot to our own Shep Smith, who is standing by here in CNBC. Uh, Shepard, we've had a lot of of uh, news. We're awaiting uh, a couple of big legal issues. What What can you tell us?
5: Kelly, let's listen in as the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, we believe is at the verdict stage. The judge has just asked the jury if they have a verdict. Remember, he's the now 18 year old in Kenosha, Wisconsin, August 25th of last year. Said he went to help people and protect property when the city was in the throes of violence after white cops shot a young black man. Uh, During that period, he shot shot and killed two people, shot and maimed a third. Now we believe after three days of deliberations, the jury has a verdict. Let's listen. You've been following this trial.
6: The defendant will rise,
7: face well, the jury, and hearken to its verdicts. State of Wisconsin versus
5: Kyle Rittenhouse. As to the first count of the information, Joseph Rosenbaum, we the jury find the defendant Kyle H. Rittenhouse not guilty. As to the second count of the information, Richard McGinnis, we the jury find the defendant Kyle H. Rittenhouse not guilty. As to the third count of the information, unknown male, we the jury find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty. As to the fourth count of the information, Anthony Huber, we the jury find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty. As to the fifth count of the information, Gage Roskreutz, we the jury find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty.
3: Members of the jury, are these your unanimous verdicts? Is there anyone who does not agree with the verdicts as read? Uh, would you wish the jury pulled?
7: Yeah. Okay.
3: Uh, okay, folks, your uh, job is done, and uh, we started just about three weeks ago. And I, uh, caught, I told you it could last two weeks and two days. This is, two week, this is three weeks. Uh, You were a wonderful jury to work with. Kyle Rittenhouse,
5: 18 years old, uh, who shot and killed two people uh, in last August and shot and maimed a third, found not guilty on all counts. Those counts were reckless homicide, use of a dangerous weapon, first-degree reckless endangering safety, first-degree intentional homicide, and other charges. Not guilty across the board from this jury in Kenosha, Wisconsin, today. Kyle Rittenhouse made the case during his trial that his father lives in Kenosha. He lives across the state line. He saw the he saw the, the violence that was happening in the city, the burning of property after this police shooting, and decided he wanted to go over and help he made the case that he was going to clean off graffiti and there was video of him doing that and then at night he was going to help protect property at a car dealership as it turned out he ventured off from that car dealership and ended up in a series of confrontations over a period of about three minutes and he said when he shot the three victims he did so in self-defense he said it was his belief that he had no other choice he had to stop the threat as he put it in trial The prosecution was claiming that he did this on purpose. They called him a chaos tourist, said he was on a mission of vigilante justice, that he had gone to do the work of the police and taken the law into his own hands and that he should be found guilty of homicide. He was not, not guilty on all charges. The prosecutor said before this that they would if not be speaking after done, this case no matter what happened. The defense attorney said that they'll have a news conference a little bit later from their, own, from their own quarters. For now, let's go to our legal analyst, David Henderson, civil rights attorney, CNBC contributor who's been following this case along with us from the beginning. David, any surprises?
8: Chip, I can't say that there are any surprises here. I always thought this case was going to be a very different, difficult one from the beginning. I thought that the self-defense was going to be an issue. And so I cannot say I'm shocked, disappointed, but not shocked. What, what was your read
5: on this case, David?
8: You know, my read from the beginning was that really what you have to do in this trial, shop is indirectly you're putting the police on trial. You're also putting gun laws on trial. And the way that people who own and carry guns feel about the self-defense claim, it departs from legal analysis. And it's very, very difficult to get them to see it differently than the way they tend to want to believe it.
5: So this case is sort of reflective of of our politics, our tribal politics today. This has become a a rooting ground for one side of politics and and an area of concern from the other. Um, It's reflective more than anything.
8: Yeah, that's 100 percent true, Chef. And what I often tell people when we get into discussions about legal analysis as it relates to cases is that we're talking about trial law. The law only goes so far because you have to get past bias, and that's what persuasion is. And sometimes you just can't quite pierce that veil, but- You also have to be honest here. This trial was a bit of a mess and it was extremely confusing based on the way that it was handled. and That didn't help anything.
5: Yeah. The jury instructions were of particular notice as the the judge himself admitted that his own jury instructions were confusing. And then the jury asked for copies of it, enough copies for all of the panelists to have it. Those jury instructions were definitely problematic.
8: Oh, Shep, they were because I practice with them so that I can talk you about them when i get on the air and i practice with other lawyers and we were confused working through those instructions self-defense is covered in four different parts of the instruction and the language is different in each one of those parts it's really hard for someone who's not an attorney to piece all of that together during deliberation.
5: David Henderson, uh, thank you for your analysis throughout this. Uh, appreciate your time and, and your expertise. Kyle Rittenhouse, the 18-year-old uh, in court today crying upon hearing the verdict, not guilty on all six counts in Kenosha, Wisconsin. A full recap and live coverage of what follows this tonight on the news, 7 Eastern. Right after J- Jim Cramer, right here on CNBC. For now, back to Kelly for more of Halftime. Sh-
1: Shep, thank you so much. Our Shepard Smith following this story for us. A Prosecution also resting in the Elizabeth Holmes case this afternoon. So, as I mentioned, a very busy afternoon. Uh, we're keeping an eye on the markets here. Dallas down about 200 points. We're back in a moment.
7: Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI.
9: Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction.
7: Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block.
4: Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at Canva.com, designed for work.
8: What's on the horizon for financial markets?
1: Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Austria's nationwide COVID shutdown is sending jitters across global markets. Cases have been spiking in other European countries like Germany. The pan-European Stock 600 and Germany's DAX both dropped a third of a percent today, while Austria's stock market plunged three percent for its worst day in over a year. NBC's Claudio Lavanga is in Rome with the latest on the spread across the continent. Claudio?
6: Hey, Kelly. Yes, well, Austria made the news last week when the Chancellor announced that only the unvaccinated will go into lockdown for the past week to try to stem the fourth wave of COVID-19. That hasn't worked out because every single day we've seen record-breaking rises in the number of people catching or testing positive to COVID-19. So the Chancellor today had to extend the lockdown to the whole of the population. Why? Probably because Austria has one of the, if not the, lowest vaccination. Rates in Western Europe with 66% of adults being vaccinated. There you compare that to neighboring countries like Italy, where I am, uh, for instance, where the vaccination rate is over. 80 percent now a lockdown a full lockdown is nothing new of course we've seen it all around in the u.s here in italy and in austria as well this is several times Uh, what is new there is that austria on top of this has announced that starting from february next year uh, it will make vaccination mandatory and that is the first european country to do that which makes you wonder whether it will be the only one or the last one with other countries follow well we'll see kelly
1: Claudio, what can you tell us about Italy, where you are, which was hit early by the pandemic, and about Germany, where cases are really spiking, but there's yet been no response like this?
6: Well, in Italy, cases are on the rise, as in the rest of Europe, due to the fourth wave of the pandemic. And it is very much under control. The cases that we have seen here are nothing compared to what we're seeing in places like in Austria and in Germany. Why? Because in Italy, there have been very, very anti-COVID measures being implemented very early. If you think about it, Italy was the only country that is required, that required a so-called green pass, which essentially shows you either vaccine you recently recovered from COVID or you took recently a negative test to go into every public place. We had that for months now. And recently in the past few weeks, that Green Pass has been applied to people who go to work. Every single worker in the country, whether it's public or private, needs to show they have a Green Pass if they want to go to work. So all that combined means that Italy is holding up very well in terms of uh, dealing with new COVID cases. The same can be said, for Germany. In Germany, there are record breaking cases of new uh, COVID cases every single day. Yesterday, there were 65,000. That is the highest number uh, on a single day since the start of the pandemic. Angela Merkel, the Chancellor, said that the fourth wave is hitting Germany with full force. Right now, there's no need for a green pass like in Italy here, there, but they are talking about introducing a green pass there to enter public places like bars and restaurants, Kerry. It's
1: fascinating what Italy has done, and again, giving you a couple of different ways to qualify for that, uh, including if you've uh, recently suffered from it. Uh, Maybe some ideas there, as the rest of the country will now turn its attention to uh, battling this as well. Claudio, thank you so much for joining us, NBC's Claudio Lavagna in Rome. Now, at the start of the pandemic, U.S. policymakers rushed to lend support to the economy using tools and methods that harken back to the financial crisis. In fact, they sent so much money to state and local U.S. governments that some are now dealing with record surpluses. My next guest argues that the central challenge now is inflation and the excess demand can be blamed in part on this policy response. So how should policymakers try and fix the mess that some would say they created? Joining me now is Neil Irwin, senior economics correspondent at The New York Times. Neil, welcome. And I don't think anybody blames them for trying to help the economy during the, you know, the most acute phase of the crisis. But where do we go from here?
10: Yeah, I mean, look, as late as December of last year, if you looked at, uh, at bond market measures, if you looked at uh, just the tenor of, of economic data and the outlook, it was very shaky. So it's understandable why we've had this ultra-easy monetary policy, you know, $3 trillion in, in stimulus just since December. Um, at the same time, we're kind of off, uh, you know, off our, off our position. We're out of position in terms of the, the macroeconomic policy mix with the uh, facts on the ground of the real economy. You know, I think the path ahead is trying to figure out how to get past these supply chain issues and withdraw this uh, this liquidity in a way that doesn't cause a recession. That's the central challenge for the months ahead.
1: Yeah, and I wonder if the president will leave uh, Chair Powell in place and maybe kind of blame him if that if that doesn't go well. I mean, we don't know, right? How markets are going to take it, and we don't know if he's going to decide he wants Brainerd to be the one uh, to be appointed and, and lead the Fed through this. It's going to be one of the biggest challenges. You know, and in some ways, the pandemic response is easy. Maybe they overdid it, but this phase could be very challenging.
8: Yeah, I think if
10: you think about where we are right now, 6% CPI inflation, 4.6% unemployment rate, yet still with a 0% uh you know Fed funds rate and and just starting to taper QE. Uh that that those numbers don't really align by any kind of conventional traditional way of thinking about monetary policy, whether it's Powell or Brainerd or, or even a, a dark horse uh, surprise candidate. Uh, that's, the, that's the big challenge they have to deal with. And we just heard these comments from, from Rich Clare to the vice chair uh, earlier today, uh, suggesting they might uh, speed up this taper sooner rather than later. So uh, I think the Fed is realizing that they're kind of out of position and trying to figure out how to, to get to a, a tighter monetary policy that aligns with where the economy is without uh, you know, really, really breaking the system.
1: And the biggest pressure they'll be under is if the economy does slow, Neil, and they don't reach their socioeconomic goals.
10: Yeah, nobody's better off if we if we have a recession next year. Um, you know, then, then we're in that kind of stagflation world that people have warned about and, and, and been concerned about. Uh, right now, we're not in stagflation, right? We are we have inflation. It's high, but we have uh, quite strong growth. And, and that seems set to, to continue. Look, we're on track for for both nominal, uh, definitely nominal GDP to be above trend uh, in 2022. Uh, how much of that becomes real growth and real GDP? How much of that is just inflation? That's the big open question for, for 2022.
1: Yeah. And the biggest one of all, Neil, it's great to see you. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Colin. Neil Irwin with The New York Times. Quick check on markets. Show the Dow still down 211 points. So it's taken a little bit of a leg lower the last few moments. The low, it was down 277. S&P's up a point. NASDAQ's up 79 on those falling bond yields and that COVID concern today. And Foot Locker, take a look at these shares getting left behind despite beating on the top and bottom line in their earnings and having better than expected same-store sales. But they say they'll expect global supply chain constraints to persist through the first quarter through this quarter, I should say, and shares are now on pace for their worst day since the pandemic, March 2020. They're now nearly 13%. Full Locker CEO will be on closing bell, by the way, at 3 p.m. Eastern time to talk about all of these issues. And shares of Pfizer and Moderna are getting a boost after the FDA authorized the COVID booster shots for all U.S. adults. Now the CDC's independent panel of experts is meeting today to review the data and is expected to quickly approve the third doses. If approved, distribution could start this weekend. Moderna up about 5.5%. And check out these InsureTech names, initiations by Jeffries, they're warning investors to be selective with these early stage models. They say HIPPO is the best positioned. They give it a buy rating and $8 price target, which is more than double HIPPO's current level. It's under four. They also initiated coverage of Root with a hold and Lemonade with an underweight. All three names have seen big declines from their all-time highs. Root down 85% from its all-time high just over a year ago. Lemonade down 71% from its high in January. And Hippo, which was a SPAC in August, is down 65% from its high take a quick break, but up next, surging crop prices. Crop prices could prompt farmers to upgrade their deer equipment. And 2020 was a huge year for Best Buy, but what does 2022 have in store? Plus, the street is bullish on Dollar Tree's grocery bet. We have key numbers to watch and how to position ahead of all these co- excuse me companies' earnings next week. Stay with us.
11: Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline. Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big. Summarize with AI in a click. click, click, click. Rider's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work.
0: Canva. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses.
1: Welcome back, everybody. It's time for Earnings Exchange, where we give you the action, the story, and the trade on three stocks. Today, we're looking at a few names on tap for next week, and we will begin with Deer. Shares are lowered today, and it's been a bumpy ride over the past month thanks to its ongoing labor dispute. The company just reached a deal with workers. Analysts expect a strong quarter as surging crop prices and rising income have stirred farmers to upgrade their equipment. Deer could also benefit from the housing boom as their construction and forestry sales are expected to see a boost. Bringing us that story today is our own Seema Modi and Gina Sanchez, who is CEO of Chantico Global, will give us our trades today. Welcome to you both. Seema, what are, what are we watching for with Deere?
12: Kelly, as you pointed out, the demand story is very strong. We have wheat prices at a nine-year high. This infrastructure bill that was passed, which is expected to be uh, sort of drive orders for John Deere's construction equipment. So the real question this quarter will be, how disruptive was that five-month strike? And we're not talking just numbers, but there was no evidence of factory shutdowns. There were some indication that there was lower productivity at some of its factories. Does that mean it's end-user? Farmers will not be able to buy the tractors and plants? planters they need come harvest season. Uh, Are there spare parts that will be harder to procure in early 2022? So that will be the main question. The stock has done incredibly well. It's up about uh, 9% over the past two months and I put by uh, 33% so far this year. And then the other factor to watch will be robotics and technology. Kelly, of all the industrials, John Deere has put the most money to work in research and development, uh, wow. recently acquiring bear flag robotics for two hundred and fifty million dollars.
1: Interesting, because obviously we can see the potential, uh, Gina, there for use in farm equipment. So are you saying the Home Depot you think could be actually a good read through for this one? I'm sure they're happy to have the labor dispute settled now. So mm-hmm. what would you do with the stock?
11: Well, look, I think what we're looking at, SEMA hit all the big points. There's strong demand, obviously, for crops, for crop prices, strong demand by farmers. And you look at Lowe's, Home Depot, they're experiencing great sales as well. So really, at the end of the day, it comes down to whether or not the disruption has mattered. And so far, we haven't seen significant downgrades by analysts. And I think that's an important read right now, because if there was an expectation, we would have seen those analyst expectations being revised down and they've stayed solid for the last four four weeks going into earnings. So I think that we can expect a strong quarter uh, this quarter.
1: All right. So Gina, a buyer there, dear's at 348, still only a 16 and a half forward PE. And Sima, thank you. We'll move along to Best Buy now, whose shares have surged 20% this month, their third quarter guidance suggests they'll post a 1% to 3% drop in sales from a year ago, given how strong those sales were during the pandemic. But the street is a little more bullish, thinking maybe less than a 1% decline. Second store sales were up 24%, but those comps were a little easier. Joining us now with the story is Courtney Reagan. Courtney, with, uh, with Best Buy, how much is priced in here? Yeah, Kelly, you know, I think there is a
13: decent amount that's priced in. I think that analysts are not exactly sure how to play this one near-term. Long-term, many of them look at this as a winner. It's one of these last man standings when it comes to consumer electronics. They've really been ahead of the game when it comes to services and thinking about ways that their products can really connect to each other, connect to your life, connect to your home. But for this quarter, I think there are still questions about the supply chain, the chip shortages, even though CEO Corey Berry did come on the Today Show and say that their inventory levels were were good, that they were up 20% from 2019, up 50% from 2020. That was a little bit ago. I think investors want to hear about how they're looking now. They want to understand what the appliance demand was like, what the computing demand was like. Microsoft and Sony said video game sales looked good for them. Is that going to be a follow through for Best Buy? Remember, we just spent so much money outfitting our homes and our technologies for work from home, for our kids to do school, from home. How much more can you really grow on top of that? So it's a tough comparison here going forward for Best Buy in this quarter.
1: All right. And Gina, what would you do with the stock? I was just in a store the other day for the first time in a couple of years, and it is amazing how much you can see and test and experiment with, whether it's podcasting equipment or cordless vacuums.
11: Yeah, and I think, you know, Courtney's point about whether or not demand can remain as robust as it was during the pandemic is a big question. One thing Best Buy has managed to do is they've managed to flex their pricing power uh, and and be able to pass some of these wage hikes and uh, other costs that have hit them uh, through to consumers. And so I think that's a positive story. So even if they do suffer in a short term kind of supply chain pain, Uh, they should be set for the long term. So they actually look quite good uh, as a whole.
1: You're not worried about this, you know, being priced in? I mean, a 20 percent pop in the past month is pretty significant.
11: But actually, if you look at sort of the overall P.E., it's still fairly valued. I don't see it as cheap. I don't see it as expensive. So. You know, the the, the question that, that you really have to ask here is, you know, is it a short term or is it a long term thing? If the company's showing pricing power, that's pretty valuable in the long run.
1: Yeah. And like you said, that Ford P.E. is still under 16. So that's uh, amazing. Courtney, thank you. But actually, stay right there. We're going to talk to you about some Dollar Tree. That's our <laughs> last component of earnings exchange today. And it's also had a big month with shares up 34 percent. Same-day delivery service and expansion of their combo stores with Family Dollar are expected to be big growth drivers in Q3. And Dollar Tree has seen encouraging signs in stores offering fresh produce and frozen meat. As inflation persists, will their recent rise continue through the holidays? Court, how important are the holidays for them?
13: So the holidays are important, Kelly, but I think what's even more important is this new activist investor role. Mantle Ridge taking a nearly 10% stake all in when you look at all of the investment that the company has made, making them their second largest shareholder. And they're really focused on the underperformance of family dollar. They want to take a look at that, see what they can do to increase the profitability and to close that gap between uh, family dollar and dollar general, which of course is a competitor. They think that there's room to run here and investors seem to be jazzed up about the possibility that Mantle Ridge, this activist investor, could really put some juice under uh, sort of the bottom of that family dollar, which has been struggling since it was acquired. And he brings up some interesting points about inflation and how this could be an area where consumers are looking more to the dollar stores as they fight these higher prices. But actually earlier this year, Dollar Tree said they're starting to experiment with increasing their prices as well even just up to $1.50 in some cases. Mm. But if you use the example of Dollar Rama in Canada as sort of a blueprint for this, it all over time did increase the margins. Consumers adopted it because they actually were able to get their hands on more merchandise, right? That $1 price point sort of limits what you're able to sell there, especially when mm. you've held that for decades and decades. And so I think that's really what investors are going to want to understand on the call. Are consumers accepting of those prices that were going up, even before these recent inflation data numbers that we had seen, and how much are they engaged with Mantle Ridge and accepting of their suggestions for family dollar?
1: Really interesting. So, Gina, that P.E. uh, is actually up at 24. Do you like the stock here?
11: That one's hard. The valuation here does make it a lot more challenging. And given the fact that we're looking at a pivot in the company as to whether or not they'll be able to pass this price through, uh, you know, create that that pricing power. That is a good question and one that I'm not willing to bet on uh, at this valuation. Um, You know, I think that they've certainly managed their supply chain issues well and they're showing themselves to have, you know, some legs, but it's expensive here.
1: All right. Ironically, for a dollar store. Uh, Gina, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Gina Sanchez with our trades today. Courtney, thank you as well. Courtney Reagan with our retail stories. Shares of this bank are slightly lower, but steadily climbing throughout the day. And Jim Cramer is a buyer. The stock up 2 percent, actually makes up 2 percent of his charitable trust portfolio. We will reveal the name next. Welcome back. Jim Cramer bought more shares of Morgan Stanley today after they dipped on falling rates and COVID concerns. But he says the end of the pandemic is still in sight and Morgan Stanley isn't an interest rate sensitive bank. For more, you can sign up for the CNBC Investing Club newsletter by pointing your phone's camera at this QR code on your screen or go to cnbc.com slash investing club for more of Jim's picks. And still ahead, Amazon is gearing up for record deliveries this holiday season. Frank Holland is live at an Amazon warehouse in New Jersey with some of my holiday gifts. Frank?
7: Hey there, Kelly. Amazon says it's invested a billion dollars in its delivery service partners network this year. That's those blue bands you see in your neighborhood delivering packages like these. Coming up, I'll tell you how it could change how your package gets to your front door, maybe even your back door. Much more coming up on The Exchange.
1: Welcome back to The Exchange. It's shaping up to be a pretty strong holiday season with cash flush consumers starting their shopping early. And we're a little more than a month away from Christmas already. So which retailers are best positioned for this critical period? My next guest likes Macy's, Dick's, Target and Lululemon. But with such big moves, should investors chase these gains? Joining me now is John Kernan, senior retail analyst at Cowan. Welcome back, John.
14: Hi, Kelly. Happy Friday. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for being here. Um, let's yeah. just speak to that concern. I mean, I guess we saw Target with a pullback this week, but I mean, look at Macy's. Wow.
14: Yeah, sure. I don't cover Target and Macy's. My colleague, Oliver Chen, does. But it, we're, what you're seeing is incredible strength in the consumer. Right now, you're looking at weekly retail sales data that we look at that's multiple standard deviations above any long term trend. The consumer is out and they're spending. Uh, very aggressively this early, early this holiday season. So it's going to make for a strong holiday season. I, I think the worry is, is this as good as it gets, given how flush consumers are right now?
1: Right. And I'm sure the answer to some extent is it depends. Now, I know you cover Dick's and Lulu. I believe you have a buy rating on pretty much everything in your coverage space right now, except for a couple names like Skechers and Puma. Is that right?
14: Uh, we don't have a buy rating on just everything. But, yes, we do like a lot Lulu, Nike. Under Armour, Dick's, all, all those stocks are at multi-year highs. There's been a huge inflection in the financial models. Uh, there's a lot of themes underpinning the strength in their top line and their margin structures. I think those continue into next year, even when you lap a very robust top line environment.
1: You guys are looking for holiday sales. Is this right up 11 to 13%?
14: We are. It's the best holiday top line growth here at Cal. Calend- we forecast 11 to 13% to roughly $884 billion for the holiday. It's the best holiday top-line growth we've seen since 2005. So it's one for the ages. Uh, There's been $1.8 trillion of stimulus essentially directly deposited into consumers' bank accounts since March of 2020. That's almost 10% of our whole GDP uh, that's had incredible effects on consumer demand, the supply chain, and inflation. But things are good right now for the consumer.
1: How much more room would names like Lulu and Dix have to run, do you think?
14: I think when you look at their financial models, they can double earnings over the next five years. So I think there's still upside. Certainly, some of it's been pulled forward with the moves in the stock prices. But I think next year, you're looking at another 20% plus gains in those stocks, I think, the combination of earnings growth and even some more valuation expansion can take these stocks a lot higher.
1: Let's talk Foot Locker. Is that the one we just were speaking about? You know, Bad reaction to the quarter. Can't quite make sense of it. Maybe it's talk about supply chain issues sticking around. What, what are your thoughts on it?
14: Yeah, that's certainly topical today. The stock is down uh, double digits. I think there's confusion over their guidance for the fourth quarter. And a lot of people's financial models Aren't in sync with maybe what the company's saying. But stock, if you exclude the company's stake in GOAT, which is one of the fastest growing businesses and consumers, it's a privately held company that Foot Locker holds a stake in. The stock trades at less than four times EVD with us. So it's a very cheap stock. It's so a lot of moving pieces in the financial model right now.
1: What do you think is happening with this mixed messaging? I'm just curious if other names could be vulnerable to it as well.
14: Yeah, it's on supply chain, it's on concerns of, you know, Nike. Foot is heavily levered to Nike. It's over 75% of sales. Uh, Nike obviously had uh, some supply chain issues when Vietnam shut down. Mm -hmm. And I think there's concerns as to whether Foot Locker can comp positively in the fourth quarter in what is a very robust environment. I think investors want to see growth, top-line growth, and they're not quite sure what management's guidance points to at
1: this point. Very interesting. But you think sort of an exception to the rule here uh, for what looks like a very strong season?
14: Very strong season. Like, you know, <laughs> you see what happens in the first quarter of next year when we start to lap some of those like direct deposits that came yep. into consumers' bank accounts. And it's going to be, you know, the ports will also open up at that point in time. So you'll probably have more inventory come in. And you got very tough top line comparisons. It seems like everyone. Yeah, I
1: was going to just say everyone who covers retail seems to say uh, circle back after the holidays. I mean, (laughs) I'd be telling a different story. That's been
14: 18 months of crazy financial modeling and comparisons. And it really will continue through the first half of next year. So we will be busy.
1: All right. We'll hope you can get a break. Celebrate those holidays. John, we'll see you again soon. Thanks so much. John Kernan joining me from Cowan. Moving from hard lines to e-commerce, Amazon is expecting to deliver a record number of packages this holiday season, and it's spending big bucks to keep deliveries on time while preventing drivers from burning out. Frank Holland is at an Amazon warehouse in New Jersey with more. Frank?
7: Hey there, Kelly. Well, Amazon's grown its network of delivery stations, sites like this one we're standing in right now, by 300% since 2019, as it moves the sites closer to customers to power one and two day delivery. Uh, This is where those blue trucks you see behind me, they pick up your package. This is where your package is at when you get one of those text notifications that it's about to be delivered. Now, during the holiday peak, this site will deliver 50,000 packages a day to about a 30 square mile area here in the central Jersey area. Amazon now delivers about 72% of its own packages, about a 50% increase from 2019. We spoke to the head of delivery service partners, that's the official name of Amazon's blue vans. She says the company invested a billion dollars this year, including upgrades to its routing technology ahead of this historic holiday peak.
11: We continue to improve the uh, amount of times drivers visit the same neighborhood, so their familiarity increases. These are the kinds of things that both enable our routing technology to get smarter as drivers visit these addresses. We're able to teach the tech how to help them navigate better.
7: And those upgrades will get their first big test just a week from today. Black Friday e-commerce is expected to increase by 16 percent year over year. All of Cyber Week expected to increase by double digits. The head of the DSP program says this year with this, this holiday rush, The routes, they're actually going to be more dense. That's going to allow drivers to do a little bit more customer service. That includes just talking to customers on the route, as well as package placement. You know, whether you want it at the front door, the back door, Mm. maybe even hidden somewhere to avoid those porch pirates.
1: That takes time. This is quite a contrast, Frank, with your reporting on UPS yesterday. And there's a company that spent decades working to perfect literally which turns it takes on its routes. My anecdotal experience in my neighborhood is the UPS guys know what they're doing. And when I see an Amazon van coming, I take the kids and I run the other way. (laughs)
7: Um, I don't want to comment on that, Kelly, but certainly the company says it is definitely working on its routing technology and really focusing on making sure that their drivers are more aware of where they're going and have more of a sense of, hey, do you have a, a hidden driveway? Or is there some other thing going on at your house, your neighborhood, maybe a dog, something like that? So for them, that's what really these upgrades about the routing technology is like to increase that service level when it comes to delivery.
1: Yeah, no, I feel bad. Sometimes they pull over on these really busy roads and it can be it can be hair raising. Frank, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Frank Holland on how Amazon is getting all of those packages to our doorstep. Up next, the pandemic has changed a lot about everyday life. We'll hear from the CEO of a delivery software platform about how restaurants are evolving to keep up with new demands right after this. Welcome back. The likes of Uber Eats and DoorDash existed well before the pandemic, but saw accelerated growth during the lockdowns, and it's had a big impact on how restaurants now operate. Kate Rogers spoke with the CEO of online ordering platform Olo about how it's powering the evolution of dining. Kate?
9: Hey there, Kelly. Well, although powers delivery platforms between restaurants in the on-demand world, the company also offers a suite of software products to restaurants. Its CEO, Noah Glass, says the company is seeing digital continue to be an important integration in the entire space beyond just delivery. As the world reopens, think QR ordering codes and a profile of consumer data to better power restaurant operations on site. Take a listen.
10: Is a big opportunity for digital to play in delivery but also in takeout also in drive-through and now on the on-premise experience as well and we're incredibly excited about what we're calling digital entirety digital's ability to touch every transaction and what that will unlock in enabling restaurant brands to truly realize the promise of digital hospitality
9: Olo just acquired Wisely for $187 million. That company helps to personalize guest experiences for customers, which is increasingly important in this hyper-competitive environment.
10: It's really tying together all of the customer digital touch points with the restaurant, those that go through Olo and all the other ones that don't go through Olo, into a comprehensive profile of the consumer. And that enables brands to really understand something called customer lifetime value. It is really a true North metric.
9: Now, it recently expanded its integration with Uber for alcohol delivery. The company's working with about 500 brands. The stock is lower by about 3% today. Kelly,
1: back over to you. But they basically help the restaurants deal with all of these new technology tools,
9: that's right. If you've used one of these online ordering platforms,
1: chances are you've likely
9: uh, interacted with Olo software, but they're also moving, as we mentioned, into things like QR codes because digital is not just about the delivery experience. It's about what you can do on site in restaurants as consumers return for that form of business as well.
1: It, it, You know, I wonder, Kate, how much all of this eats away at restaurant margins, even while helping them maybe replace labor or become more efficient. You know, it must be such a headache for someone who just wants to make food <laughs> dealing with all of this.
9: yeah sir. Certainly. Well, things like a QR code can help alleviate some of those labor pains. You mentioned margins, obviously a huge focus here, but I think what this company does really well and talks about quite frequently is that the consumer experience has to be good, whether you're ordering online through a DoorDash, whether you're ordering in person uh, from a server or without a server, right? This has to be a seamless customer experience, and they're trying to make that better for these restaurants, big and small.
1: All right, Kate, thank you very much. Our Kate Rogers. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.